want to welcome everybody back to the Behind the Well show. Roger here with Elias again. I'm really looking forward to uh, Sunday, Eli, the big game. Yeah, the big game, the big game that you can't say the name of the big game. Hey, listen. That's kind of silly, but It is what it is. Play by the rules. Yeah. I'm actually excited about this one. I've really become a a Kansas City fan. Are you typically not excited about the big one? Depends on who's playing. But these are actually the two teams. Like, if it would have been Baltimore, Detroit, it would have been okay. But I'm pretty excited. Yeah. There's going to be some Iowa players on the field. I mean, you got Brock Purdy from Iowa State, Kittle, and then for the – I don't know if anybody from the Chiefs are on there. Did you watch the Detroit game with San Francisco? Yes, I watched both games. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, line, the that's the Lions. They're just – some franchises are just doomed to really just never be good. Um, no, I think they're going to be good now. I do think so because they weren't good last year. And they had three first-round picks, and they hit on every single one of them. They took Aiden, Hutch- they took Aiden Hutchinson, they took yeah. Jameer Gibbs, and they took Jack Campbell, 18th overall. And I think what's impressive is they hit on every one of their first-round picks. A lot of times you don't hit. And I know when they drafted Jameer Gibbs at 12th overall, I believe, that was a pretty controversial pick because they had um, DeAndre Swift, and they ended up dishing him. And I, they're a fun team. They got some talent, man. They got wide receivers. We will see. They're, they're also playing in the NFL. It's not like they're they're not playing Division One hey, NCAA football. They were one so game away. We'll, lots of teams have been one game away. But, the, what, but it's like, the pros. They're the best. It's, do you like watching the Chiefs? Yes. You know, I love we, watching the Chiefs. We've got a lot of customers in Kansas City, so it'll be fun to interact with them. And I've been in contact with some some people about it. You know, I've kind of become a Chiefs fan over the last couple of years. And not because I've always been a Chiefs fan, just I really enjoy watching Patrick Mahomes play football. That's why I like watching him. Yeah, I like to watch him play. There's a few people, you know, in football when they play, you're like, man, I want to watch the game because I want to see this player play. He's one of them. The other one is who's also in this game is Debo Samuel. Yeah, Debo's quite the player. Dude, it's awesome. I mean, he gets like seven or eight rushes a game, and he's a beast. I mean, he is all man. It. I really enjoy watching him play football. He's really good. So, you know, before the championships, my pick to win was the Ravens just because that's, like, that's what a, a champion a lot of times looks like. They can run the ball, play defense. They can control the game, basically. But Patrick Mahomes is a different level of player. Like, even you look at it, even like quarterback like Tom Brady. Tom Brady is great and was a very great quarterback. Mahomes is kind of special, even compared to someone like him, where I don't think, I mean, the Chiefs could be 0 6 and they could be playing a team that's 6 0. If you got Patrick Mahomes playing quarterback, he can beat anybody. The big difference over the last five weeks is they're not dropping their passes. I watch. Well, it helps when the receivers catch the ball, I, right? Exp- you don't have to catch the super hard ones. Just don't drop the easy ones. And it wasn't one guy. It was Kadarius Tony, Kelsey, uh, Marquez Valdez. All of them were dropping passes. And guess what? They guess what didn't happen last week? 
drop ball. No, but no drop balls. Everybody yeah. caught the passes yeah. they need to catch. Yeah, and Travis Kelsey's playing really good at the end of the year. He's probably too old to play at that high of a level for the entire season. Look at, but you look just got to be healthy when the playoffs Look start, at Tony so. Gonzalez, man. He played forever at a super high level. Yeah, he did. It's just hard to do yeah, in certain for positions. Sure. So I'm looking forward to watching the big game. It, it's funny. My little girls have started watching football now. Blake sat and watched that whole game with me the other day. So that was actually fun. It's, we've never done like a kind of big game party, but we're going to have one with the girls this year, especially since kickoff's like 530. Yeah, that'll be fun. You know, I think the first topic I want to talk about is actually relevant to the uh, the NFL in a lot of ways, but it's lifestyle creep. And, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine and he said, how do you avoid lifestyle creep? And I said, here's the problem. You don't know you have lifestyle creep until it's there. Like it's already happened. It's not something that people set out and say, man, I really want to creep my lifestyle up and up and up. But it's what happens over time as you make more money. It does, and it's one of the, you know, like you said, it's something you don't notice, so you almost have to implement some things that you can kind of take care of it before it gets too much or before that lifestyle creep is cutting in so much that you're not saving. Well, So I'll just tell a story about myself. This year, I don't know why, because I've always been like a systematic increased saving person. And it's this year was the hardest time I ever had increasing my savings. And I almost talked myself out of it. And then I, and then I just, I was like, no, you're going to do it. Cause if you don't, I know what'll happen if I don't. Cause then if I don't increase my savings a little bit this year, what do you think I'll do next year? Oh, it worked out fine. I'm not gonna, I'll be okay. Why was this year the hardest hard? Why'd you have such a struggle this year? Increase your contribution uh, li- versus other years. Lifestyle. You're creep. just ready to live a little. Lifestyle. Cre- well, and we have three young kids, right? So there's not as much money anymore for the fun activities and the things we like to do. Um, and it seems like our it seems like our life is more expensive than it ever has been. It's like yeah. I'm not I'm not enjoying it. Well, I. I'm enjoying it as much as I ever have, but like, there's just some, you know, I want to go on an, another vacation every year. There's, there's just stuff I want to do. It's lifestyle creep. The problem is you're going to the grocery store now. Well, and that, <laughs> and prob- that probably didn't, that, that didn't help either. And then I went and bought groceries and got half a cart and it was $200. So, so I, lifestyle creep isn't necessarily bad as long as you're doing what you said and you're keeping your savings up with with where you're going, because, you know, if you were making 150,000, you were saving 15%. Let's just use a round number. Let's use 10% as a round number. That's 15,000 a year, right? And that's meant to replace your income later in life. If all of a sudden you're making 500,000 and you still saving 15% or your 10%, that's 50 grand, right? Yeah. Here's the problem. 50,000 a year, isn't going to replace $500,000 no. because the person who's making 150,000 and saving 10% to help replace that social security is a lot bigger component of their retirement where if you have to replace $500,000 of income, social security is irrelevant. 
you're gonna have to save more. And it's what we run, people don't think about that though, right? If, if you save a million bucks, and we're gonna talk about withdrawals and some of that stuff as the show goes, but if you save a million bucks and you take out 50 grand a year, well, that's 50,000 a year. If you have a million bucks and you're making 500, it's not even gonna come close. Like social security can't get you there to where you need to go. So you have to increase your contributions even more. And there's some ways to avoid this. And I think step one is what you talked about, Elias, is just do it every year. So I've got a good story to tell you. I was with one of my, actually my longest customer I have. He was my very first customer, still a customer today. So he became a customer in May of 2002. And I've, he's been a customer long enough that now I've seen his kids grow up. The first one graduated college and got her first job. And she happened to come in the other night. And they were telling me all the stuff they were doing. And, you know, we did a budget. And you know what I asked when they said they did a budget? They yeah. said, well, what, what was, was what your savings going to be? Well, I said, what, what was the first thing you put on your budget? Well, how much my 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 uh, housing cost is. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to just stop you right there. First line of the budget needs to be you. Aha. And they kind of looked at me. I'm like, yeah, because if you always pay yourself first, you're first in line. Why would you pay all these other people first? But when you get out of college, that's your first chance to avoid lifestyle creep. Because that's when it happens first. What do most college graduates do? Huh. Need a new. You need something. Need a new car. Car, typically. I've been driving a junker car. I don't have a car. I got my first job. I need to buy a car. So they put themselves behind the eight ball right away. So the first thing you can do is just pay yourself first. And that comes down to budgeting. Budgeting is a huge part, part of this. Like it doesn't matter if it's to the dollar for each specific thing or if you've designed a lifestyle budget, but you got to break your budget into savings, living expenses, and discretionary at the basic amount. And if you start, you know, really, if you kind of start with some of these things when you're young and you first start working – that's almost the best time too to build into these habits. Cause if you can save money when you're not making any and very few college graduates go out and make any sort of re what people consider real money, right? Well, if you can save money when you don't have really anything coming in, that's a good time to build those, build those habits. And the other thing it's going to help you do, it's all, it's going to help you always feel in control of your finances. And I think focusing on the things you can control is much more important than thinking about things you can't. And if your lifestyle is becoming so much that you can't afford an emergency when it comes up, you can't go replace a vehicle when you need to, well, your money's really controlling you at that point. And like, you don't have the that's the other great thing about kind of building some of these things in and having an emergency fund, saving the right amount of money, regardless of whatever comes up, like you can manage the situation and you can still be, you can control your finances instead of the other way around. I think the very best way to deal with lifestyle creep, because I actually think there's reverse lifestyle creep. We see this where people are still living like, they're impoverished, even though they're making really good money. You know, we, we've that, talked that about exists the, too. We've talked about the dynamic of 
the the family where one's a super saver and one would like to have the new house or whatever it is and the super saver is never quantified what needs to be done to be successful and i think it's why getting a financial plan becomes really important for both people because for the person who is subject to increase their lifestyle rapidly you can do a financial plan and say, look, I, I know you can afford what you're doing, but you can't afford what you're doing and be able to afford retirement. Right. There, I mean, Ooh. think about it. You can afford your lifestyle. That doesn't mean you can afford your retirement. That is true. Where other you people can, you can work forever. Right. So, well, no, you can't. Like when someone <laughs> tells me that, I'm like, sir, think about it. I'm going to work forever. OK, well, it's going to work forever. Well, you won't because at some point you're going to get sick. There's no disability income after 65. So at 66, you have a stroke. Guess what you can't do? Work forever. You're done. You're going to die. Like work forever is the most irresponsible thing somebody could say. Work, you know what work forever means? What? I don't want to be responsible for saving any money. I want to spend it all day. That's what work forever means. That's code for that. Yeah, code that's code for this is why I'm not saving because I'll just work longer. That's all that is. If someone tells you they can work forever, they're not saving any money. That would be my guess. Now, if somebody says I enjoy my job, I'm planning on setting up my retirement, but I don't know when I'm going to stop working, that's a little different. But most people that say I'm going to work forever, it's because they're not going to have a choice and they know they're not going to have a choice. Yeah, too too much lifestyle creep. There Never you go. Saved it, and guess what? They haven't saved any money. And if they tell you that they don't want to do a financial plan because they're going to work forever, it's because they don't want to know the truth. It's like me going to the doctor. I don't want to go to the doctor. I don't really want to know the truth. I know I should, but I don't really want to go. I don't want someone to tell me I'm not doing good or I need to change. Like no one wants that. It's not human nature. Do you like going to the doctor? Me? Yeah. I never go. There to you the go. Doctor. Why don't you go? I don't know. I it's time consuming. Okay, when you're forty, are you going to start going healthy. for an annual? Are you I don't start, know. I don't are you going to start going for annual physical? I think probably at a certain age, you kind of have to go, don't you? I mean, it's not a requirement. No one forces you, but you're supposed to. I mean, our doctor friend, I didn't, I, I've had I've had a physical within the last two years, and I was good, healthy as a horse, is what they told me. <laughs> Ironic. <laughs> Are you ready to take control of your financial future? The financial professionals at Premier Investments and Wealth Management are the guides you've been looking for. Picture this, a financial plan tailored exclusively to you. Our team of experienced professionals will work closely with you to understand your aspirations and develop a personalized roadmap to get you there. Whether you're dreaming of retirement, buying a new home, or sending your kids to college, we've got the tools to give you confidence in your financial life. We'll help you navigate saving and investing, retirement income, and tax strategies. Our job is not just about making money. It's about helping our clients make smart choices. We'll provide you with the tools and knowledge to confidently steer your financial ship toward a brighter future. Are you ready to embark on your financial journey with confidence? Visit www.btwealthshow.com or click the link in the description of this podcast. Your financial future awaits. Elias, we posed this question. I think I started talking about this probably six to eight months ago. But when there's a change in the Fed policy, 
How do we actually start to prepare for that? And for people who don't know what Fed policy is referring to, it's referring to interest rates. You know, the Fed sets the overnight lending rate and it really drives interest rates in America for the most part. The market moves them as well. But the talk is all around, hey, the, the Federal Reserve may begin to lower interest rates. What does that mean for people? How should you prepare if that happens? So I, I thought it would be good to, to, to talk a little bit about how people can prepare for this. And we started talking about this probably six months ago, because if, if you start preparing once they cut, it's not too late, but it's probably not optimal and we can't predict the future. So let's talk about some of the ways that people can prepare good and bad if interest rates begin to go down because the Fed eases their monetary policy. Well, one are, thing. What are that? some of the things you what are, what is what's the number one thing you're talking about to people about without making an investment recommendation? What are some of the things you're talking about with people? So for. I think for older, I guess I would, I'll say retired clients that need more income from their portfolio, starting to talk about kind of locking in higher rates for a longer period of time. I think if that's, if you're someone who is likes the conservative investment products, whether it's a fixed product, a CD, just all the things on that end of the spectrum, maybe looking at the longer duration, they say, or longer term, however you want to look at it and lock in the rate and just be okay with the fact that could rates go higher after you make this decision? Yes. The talk is they're going to go lower and it's all, it's kind of a timing thing too. We're never going to be able to time it perfect. We don't, and we don't need to be perfect with our timing of these decisions. We just need to do a good job of making good decisions. So that's one thing I've been talking with. And I know we've had a lot of, we have a lot of retired folks that need income. So, you know, that's a good conversation to have with them. I, I think that is really good advice. And I think for people that are looking at buying like a certificate of deposit where they have to lock the money up or whatever the investment vehicle is that has a guaranteed rate or a fixed rate on it, it's psychologically difficult for them to do a longer term product. And, and here's why. For the last 25 years, all they've been told, you want to buy the shortest term CD possible. So if rates go up, you can get a higher paying one because we've been in such a low interest rate environment. It's almost like people retiring when you tell them you have to hit the switch from accumulation to distribution and they really struggle with that mindset of having to take money people are struggling with the idea of trying to get a CD that's two, three, four, five years in term instead of six and nine months. And the other reason it's hard, what do people always gravitate towards Elias? The highest rate. Oh, absolutely. The highest rate right now typically is on the shorter periods of time. So people would say, well, why do why would I want to take a six month product? that pays 5.25%, I'm making up a number, 5.25%. Why would I wanna take a five-year product that pays 4.9? It's making it up, right? Well, here's what you need to ask. This is what the individual needs to ask themselves. If in 12 months, 
my one year product expires and the new rate is three and a half percent, will I be disappointed I didn't lock in the higher rate for longer? Yes. That's what pe- that's the You're question. Say, that's oh, a, I should have. That's an upside down question. Will will you be more disappointed if your your long term rate stays below the short term rate for a little while, or if the short term rate goes to three percent? Everybody should remember what CDs were two years ago, or th- not just CDs, any cash product. They were like two percent or less, and everybody was really disappointed. This is your opportunity to not be greedy. And say, you know, maybe I want to have this interest rate for longer and know what it is. There's value in the known. There is. And you just made a good comment about not being greedy. Right. I think that's I think successful investors have found a way to make decisions without greed. You know, greed and fear are the two biggest emotions in investing. So the more decisions you can make by kind of putting those aside and just making good decisions, the more successful you're going to be over the long term. Um, you know, does that mean you're going to be the perfect uh, market timer on your decisions or the perfect decision maker on what to do with your interest rates? No, but you don't have none of this. You don't you don't have to be perfect in any of it. Once people admit that they're not great market timers and they can't do it, everything becomes a lot more clear. It's a lot easier. If too. people would just admit they can't time the market because they can't. That they can't. The best stock pickers in the world can't time the market. They can't do it. Once you admit that, everything becomes a lot more clear as to what you should do. You, you're not paralyzed by should I put the mark. It's no longer should I invest the money. It becomes how much do I have to invest. Hey, you, there's a lot of people out there on the internet that'll tell you they can time the market. I'm yeah, just, guess what? I'm They're on saying. TikTok and YouTube. Let Let's see your balance sheet. But to end the episode today, we're going to talk about blanket advice. And this year, because we've coined 2024, the year of personalized advice, one of the things and one of the most common pieces of financial advice that I would say a vast majority of people subscribe to is something called the 4% rule. And this 4% withdrawal rule hit maximum popularity I think it was about a month or two ago because Dave Ramsey had a call on his show. Someone said something about the 4% rule and he said it was fooey and whatever. People can watch the clip if they want. I'm not going to try to, to rehash it, but I thought it'd be good to talk about why the 4% rule really isn't the best advice in a couple of reasons. I want everybody to first know this idea was actually created by a financial advisor in 1994. Okay, so number one, it hasn't been around that long. Right? That's that 26 years? That's not very long. And it's amazing how widely adopted it is over this period of time. I mean, mutual fund companies put articles out about this stuff, right? And basically, and his name is William Bengen, that's who came up with the 4% rule. And what he did is he went and back tested the stock market and the bond market from 1926 through 1992, 50 year period of time. And he assumed a 10% return for the stock market and 5.2% return for the bond market. So 
The first reason this isn't very accurate is who's averaged 5.2% in the bond market the last 20 years? No one. I mean, not on yield. Maybe there's some price, but it depends on what you own. So I don't know as if that's a good barometer. But what he did is he, he just went back and said, this is what history has shown us. And what's the first thing in every prospectus? Past performance is not indicative of future results. And that's what this is all based upon, something that happened years ago. And I'm not saying it is a horrible idea, but we believe in very specific advice. And, and the reason they came up the 4% rule is he ran four different withdrawal rates primarily. A 3% withdrawal rate, a 3% withdrawal rate, every portfolio over that period of time would have lasted 50 years. The 4% withdrawal rate most lasted 50 years. Only a few fell short. 5%, half the portfolios were exhausted in less than, in less than 50 years. And the 6% withdrawal rate, only seven portfolios out of the total um, number they did lasted 50 years. 10 of them lasted less than 20. And it got me thinking, you know what the problem with this is? What is that? The the reason the 6% withdrawal rate didn't work is because they didn't they didn't segment their money by responsibility like we do in our bucket strategy. Because this just assumed when the stock market went down, they would sell an equal amount of stocks and bonds or whatever the proportion was, right? If it's a 60-40 portfolio, it didn't say we're only going to sell the bonds because they didn't go down. It assumed they sold for a $10,000 distribution, 6,000 stock and 4,000 of bonds. And every time you sell stock when it's down, you locked in your loss. Especially if you're taking distributions, when you sell when you're down, you locked in the loss. What's a bucket strategy or any really good withdrawal strategy do? The goal of a withdrawal strategy is strictly to avoid selling stock market investments when they're down in value or bonds if they're down in value. In 2022, the bond market index was down 14%. So if you didn't have a bucket of cash, you were locking in a 14 to an 18% loss somewhere that you're never getting back. It's why the 4% rule is for people who don't want to get a financial plan and they want to do a true withdrawal strategy. I was talking to a, a potential customer the other day and they're transitioning in the next year or two from accumulation to distribution. And they said, you know, I've always done this by myself the last 30 years. I'm like, well, I mean, it's a lot harder to mess it up in the accumulation phase than it is in the distribution phase. The accumulation phase, as long as you keep putting your money in and you have good investments you're putting it into, those things tend to work out. It's the distribution phase when you take it from the wrong type of account. When you take out, you know, a stock market investment when it's down, that's the way that you can kill your retirement. And I think that's why personalized advice is really important in planning a withdrawal strategy versus just saying, yeah, I'd take 4% a year. It'll work out. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And it's, you know, it's a good, it's a good rule of thumb. But there's a lot that doesn't go into it. You just talked about the volatility. It's not really designed for your personal goals. And there's really, I think that's the, that's really the benefit and the, 
the beauty of getting a personalized financial plan distribution strategy is you don't have to operate on a rule of thumb that may or may not work for you at an op to me in an optimal way, right? Where if we have a distribution, let's say you're taking out 8% of your account for a while to drive income and things, but then, and you're delaying social security and then you turn and then you start taking social security and take less. I mean, there's so many different ways to actually take money for retirement, for income, um, that to just say 4%, well, okay, well, if we have a gangbuster year in the market, the market's up like 15 or 20, like, why wouldn't you be able to take more that year? Or if there's a year, I mean, you know, if there's a year where maybe the market's down, but you have like, you have some cash in there, then maybe you kind of lower it a little bit. You know, I don't know. There's, we just don't really operate around that. I mean, I know that it's a good rule of thumb and it makes sense conceptually to think about, but there's so many different ways to accomplish the goals that people have. Do you know how many people come to this office and take 4% out? Very few. I have a lot of customers ask if they're spending too yeah. much. But we don't quantify that by a percentage. We quantify no. it through the results of a financial plan. Because if you're 78 years old and your life expectancy is seven years, your withdrawal rate could maybe be seven or eight percent. Like it all depends on what your age is. I mean, I would argue that if you were if a person was involved in the fire of movement, and this is where blanket advice is super dangerous. Let's say you're 45 years old and You've got, I don't know, 5 million bucks. And you're going, man, 4% a year. I'm 45. I, I can live on that. Are you sure? What happens with inflation? All the different things that happen. I'm going to argue that if you were 40 or 45 and thought you were going to live off what you have, replace today's income, your withdrawal rate needs to be lower. Yeah, because there's uh, a lot more yeah. sequence of return risk involved in there. There's a lot more other stuff that can come up. So the the closer you are to retirement, arguably the higher your rate can be. And nobody just does 4%. You know what people spend? They spend what they need to to survive. That's what they do. And have fun and do the yeah. things they want to do. Survive and live. Like Survives yeah. first, and then if we can live a little, we will too. Yeah. But people that are just stuck in a blanket, you know, percentage rule, it's just so unfair to those people because a lot of those people say, well, I can't spend more than 4%. Well, do you need as much money when you're 82 as you do when you're 65? I, hope I mean, not. I I'd go pull the people, you know, in their 80s. I mean, they're going to spend most of their money on health care and not spend it on vacations to Florida for spring break. And that's not bad. It's just a fact. So with that said, I, I, I'd encourage anybody who's in that situation where you're getting within, you know, five to seven years of looking at going from the accumulation phase to the distribution phase to get a hold of us at btwellshow.com or click the click the link below. We'll help you put together a withdrawal strategy, a personalized financial plan to to make sure you can accomplish the goals that you have going into retirement. You have anything else you'd like to say, Eli? Everyone, thank you for listening and supporting our program. We really appreciate it. Hope everybody has a great day. 
Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. This information is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized tax advice. We suggest that you discuss your specific tax issues with a qualified tax advisor. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks including possible loss of principal. Dollar cost averaging involves continuous investment in securities. Regardless of fluctuation in price levels of such securities, an investor should consider their ability to continue purchasing through fluctuating price levels. Such a plan does not assure profit and does not protect against loss.